Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How are you today, Sean? I think I'm super as always, once again. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I've been pretty sick for quite a while, but I think I'm better now. It's like that Cartesian riddle. Are you actually better, or is a demon convincing you that you're better? Are you the demon? <laughs> Because you keep convincing me. I might be. Um, it was a pleasure having the lovely Alan Flanagan here for the last episode, wasn't it? It was really nice. You know, I love seeing him. And, and we've gotten dozens and dozens of emails and tweets saying, who was that Irishman who was with you? And why didn't you send us pictures of his arms? <laughs> well, we are moving on from one nation to another. I don't think we have done a single... European film on Broad Appeal. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sad when the most exotic film we have is dead again. I know, which is basically a bunch of Europeans slumming it in uh, downtown Los Angeles along with Wayne Knight. I, I can assure you, Sean, Wayne Knight, I checked, appears nowhere in the film that we are going you to promise, do. You promise. I right. promise you. The film, ladies and gentlemen, if we haven't said so already, we haven't. is Damage or... Damage. <laughs> but this is the film's English, isn't it? The film is in English. But it's a French film, is it? Well, that's, I suppose, debatable. The film is, as I said, Damage from 1993, directed by Louis Mal. So it has a French director. But do you know where it's set? Yeah, it's set in London. I know this. Yeah, so it's set in London. Where we are right now. Yes, we are here right now. When I first saw this film, I don't think I'd ever been to London. Now I know it. You'd never even heard of London. <laughs> to me... London at the time was the city of Mary Poppins. So Damage is an erotic drama and it stars... The film stars Jeremy Irons, who only a few years before had won the Best Actor Oscar for Reversal of Fortune, as well as two formidable actresses, and I think two of our favourites in the pantheon, Juliette Binoche and Miranda Richardson. Now, interesting that you would call them formidable actresses, because I would call them formidable actresses <laughs> myself. <laughs> All right. So, Sean, when I suggested that we cover this film, did it mean anything to you? No, nothing. What do you think the name damage implies? Well, I mean, I was thinking of, like, car crashes. I was thinking of bodies crashing into each other in the more metaphorical way. Mm. And... Um, I mean, I do know a little bit about the plot. It's the story of a man who conducts an affair with his son's fiance, And significantly, she happens to be French. Do you think that's a bad thing? What? To have an affair with your son's fiance? Uh, I think probably, if your son doesn't know about it. I mean, if your son's cool with it, then, you know. Yeah. You know. I'm becoming more permissive every day. So, <laughs> I'm not sure that is a bad thing anymore. What? Sneaking around furtively and doing it? Or, you know, just like doing it out in the open? Maybe both. Well, let's say that they are they are definitely keeping secrets. We will, mm. we will say that much. Now, let me guess. Now, so, let me guess. Miranda Richardson plays the wife. This was a big year for Miranda Richardson, as you pointed out earlier, 1993. Yes, it was, because I know the film Enchanted April got a lot of um, attention. And The Crying Game also was big that year, but she had a smaller supporting but incredibly memorable role in that. This was definitely Miranda Richardson's breakthrough year with three um, movies that all did well with critics and Oscar. And the public as well. This movie, I think, did middling, was quite divisive. Um, well, you know what, Brian? Sex, strangely enough is not always a draw to the cinema. Okay. When I was young, I have to admit that though I had very sophisticated adult film tastes, I was not always allowed to see the sexiest movies. And we're talking like The Crying Game, for instance. I wasn't allowed to see the first year that it came out. Even, gentle listeners, The Prince of Tides, a film that one does not think of as softcore porn. Yeah, well, Pauline Kael thought it was, didn't she? <laughs> What was it she said? Apart from porn, does any other film follow two sex scenes one after the other? Yes. So I wasn't allowed to see The Prince of Tides. I wasn't allowed to see The Crying Game. Somehow I saw Damage. Which kind of makes up for it, doesn't it? I think this was probably because I just rented it on my own. I think this might have been during the um, brief but orgasmic period of my life where I got free vid video rentals from video to go. Since we spent so much time last episode extolling the virtues of Kiernan's in 
in uh, Lanesburg County, Longwood. Can we please take a moment to talk about Video To Go? Yeah, this was when Video To Go was still in its Dorchester location before it moved to East Milton. And I had the honor, Sean, not to toot my own horn, but I won their annual Oscar contest. I correctly predicted all of the top Oscar categories at age whatever I was. Age 13. seven. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but the, the prize was amazing. The prize was one free movie rental a week for a year. That's, that is great. It is amazing. I, I suspect we would not be doing this podcast had it not been for this contest and my victory. I have to say, I then tried to win again and again and again many years. And even though I got the same number of categories right, I swear to you they rigged it so I wouldn't win. I entered with different family members' names. I was like Sister Barbara Healy, Jerry Mullen, Barbara Healy Smith, all different kinds of people, and we never won. We got lots of Leonard Maltin film guides, though. That's pretty monumental in the young cinephile's uh, childhood, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I could go, and I had a wide range of choice, not just damage. I could have gotten Mrs. Soffel or Madame Susatska or anything I wanted. That was Mrs. Sobel. <laughs> Madame Susatska is a film of legend here at Broad Appeal. <laughs> So much so, we will never watch <laughs> if it. If only it was from the 1990s. All right, so somehow I got my hands on damage. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How did you get your hands on damage? Because my childhood was spent, one, not getting served alcohol until I was the legal age, and two, not getting to see any adult films until I was the age appropriate to see them. What's the rating system on video cassettes? Well, this movie is one of those... <clears throat> Famous cases where when the director's, the first initial cut was given to the ratings board, it was um, rated NC-17. And Louis Malle protested, but they forced him to cut some, a few seconds, I think, of the film to get an R rating. I first became interested in it, I think, from reading Roger Ebert's um, video companion. So maybe I was watching it a few years after the movie came out. He called it one of the best films of the year. And he talked particularly about Juliette Binoche's mysterious and inscrutable eyes and this moment where she and Jeremy Irons first meet and the unreadability of their gaze. He says the difficulty that some people have with the film is, is its truth about obsession and sex and eroticism. And he says audiences find it much easier to look up Sharon Stone's skirt than they do to look into Juliette Binoche's eyes. Mm. And then I was absolutely flabbergasted by these sex scenes. I remember thinking, God, that doesn't seem enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, you'll see what they do in this movie. Sex is so revolting. Well, it's just, it. I was like, is she being hurt? What's What's going on here? So this really singed itself onto my mind. Whenever I think of heterosexual sex, I probably think of Julia Binoche and well, Jeremy Irons. I mean, I'm sure you could think of worse. <laughs> I do not know what my sexual awakening in film was. The first, like, nudity I ever saw in the cinema was Titanic. In the cinema. Draw me like one of your French girls. Yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I, I know, I know. I'm... I honestly Although there know. is that one sexy shot where the... The windows of the car steam up and she, that, run, she runs her hair down. But wasn't that James Cameron's hand? They, <laughs> like, apparently, like, this is what my mother told me. She said that uh, Kate Winslet's hands were too big, so it was James Cameron's hand. What, because he has, he has dainty lady-like hands? Well, if I was directing that film, they would have used my hand, because I've got small hands. It's true, not even the rain has such small hands. Oh, no. no. Um, honestly, I have no idea what my sexual awakening in film was. I think I've seen a few films with, like, sexy elements in it. Actually... Hollow Man might have been one of them. What? Okay, well, I'm not even going to open that can of worms. Sean, <laughs> Kevin Bacon, we're back down the River Wild. <laughs> On this crazy River Wild. So I think this movie is an interesting one because it is a French director looking at the frigid, chilly British in comparison with the sexually adventurous French Louis Malle had a reputation for being a sexual provocateur. He had films about incest and teenage prostitutes. He also, of course, is, you know, was at the time married to the great Candace Bergen. No. <laughs> yes. Murphy the, Brown. Yeah, he was married to my beloved Murphy Brown. My, I love when that happens. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a bit like, you know, it's the intercontinental version of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. Or Sam Shepard and Jessica Lange. <laughs> you know that... That uh, you must have seen that Oscar clip where um, 
Candice Bergen and and uh, Jacqueline Bisset present best foreign film, and she speak speaks French. in impeccable French, and she says. Uh, she says something of uh, Louis or something like that. She speaks to Louis in French in, in the thing. Wait, so she was married to him? She was married to him. Yeah, Kenneth Bergen till, till he died. Oh my God. Yeah, amazing. You know, I've always wanted to be in one of those couples where I'm the inexplicable partner of someone else. <laughs> Are you sure that hasn't happened to you? Yeah, yet? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> no, well, actually... Never mind. <laughs> okay, we are we are circling round and round and round like the spiral staircase that features very prominently in the climax of this film. That's all I'll say. Thanks for ruining it, Brian. Can we pause for a minute and talk about our two leading ladies, who actually I realized from looking it up on Wikipedia are not that different in age. Juliette Binoche is currently fifty-two. And Miranda Richardson, I think, is only 56 or 58. She's just like four or five years really? older. Yeah. Well, isn't that good in terms of casting, that the sex the sex pod is only a few years uh, younger than the dowdy, frigid wife? <laughs> I guess. So, um, who do you want to take up first, Miranda or Juliette? Let's do Miranda first. Okay. What, what do you think of Miranda Richardson? Well, it's so funny. Okay, until I ever saw a Miranda Richardson film, her name was just synonymous with quality. Uh-huh. But also comedy. The, she played Bettina in Absolutely Fabulous. Oh. She starred in... Well, Bettina was only a guest star uh-huh. in a couple of episodes, but very memorable. She also did some things with French and Saunders. She did lots of I comedy. I think she might have done Blackadder as well. Yeah, she did do Blackadder. She yeah. played Queenie in Blackadder. Mm-hmm. So for me, Miranda Richardson was always a comedic actress. Mm-hmm. I've always been impressed by any actor or actress who can do comedy and drama it's it's very difficult i think she transitions very well from doing these kind of quintessentially british period pieces you know things like the hours playing virginia wolf's sister or tom and viv where she plays t.s Eliot's wife and then she was in spider yeah that's what i was just gonna say taking risks with edgy independent auteurs like um David Cronenberg. She also has a long-standing relationship with Wallace Shawn. She did um, the play and film of his um, The Designated Mourner, and then she was also in that weird one, Grasses of a Thousand Colors, at the Royal Court, where she turns into a cat and he has sex with her. Wow. Yeah, it's a very weird play. I would so see that. It's about six hours long. Well, you know, we are huge fans of Wallace Shawn on this podcast, just to prove how intellectual we are. <laughs> In fact, he likes my moustache, just saying. It's true, but you... It's true, Brian, tell them the anecdote. Tell I'm them. not going to tell it now. Fine. You, you aren't That'll a... be on our extras section. <laughs> you aren't a fan of Wallace Shawn until you've seen a play in which he talks about masturbating a cat. So, yeah, Miranda Richardson, I mean, she always plays someone who's a little bit twitchy or edgy or or something. But at the same time, I think Miranda Richardson is quite sexy. Yeah, but I don't think she's often cast that way. In the same year, she was that IRA sex kitten in The Crying Game. But she's not really a sex kitten. She's kind of a sort of scary dominatrix, like executing angel kind of thing. Yeah, same thing. She has lots of interesting arrows in her quiver, shall we say. Okay. Now, can we, shall we, shall we open up the Pandora's box that is talking about Juliette Binoche? Yeah. My God. Where does one even begin? She's mesmeric and beautiful and um, enigmatic. I think Juliette Binoche is probably better than almost any actress at just being still and not speaking on screen. It's a very French quality. But, um. But Juliette Binoche is never blank doing it. This is her, this is her skill. Yeah. She can pause on screen, not saying a thing, but also conveying both thought and emotion. There's no blankness to her. Julia Pinoche, I mean, she was known for these erotic roles in her early career. Um, Unbearable Lightness of Being with Lena Olin and Daniel Day-Lewis was, I think, maybe her first English language role. And then this. Well, you know, she is breathtaking in Godzilla. (laughs) Those ones sort of stand out. I mean, there are clunkers in her filmography. Not that Godzilla is a clunker. Godzilla's I know you actually quite it, a good film. But is she is she used well? She is because she's killed off pretty quickly. Do you know what I found out just from Wikipedia? Apparently, Steven Spielberg courted her for a number of films that she kept turning down. Which ones? Uh, Schindler's List, perhaps not that surprising. I'm not sure who she would have played. Maybe, um... Not the woman with the red dress. No, that's a girl, Sean. It's a tiny girl. Oh, I've never seen the movie. Okay. There is a... There's I'm a... thinking of The Matrix. Whoops. There's a woman in a red dress in that. 
Listeners, take note. Sean has confused Schindler's List with The Matrix. We now resume our normal program. Um, no, I. <laughs> she was apparently offered parts in Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. Oh, interesting. Could she have been Laura Dern in Jurassic Park? Maybe. It would take her decades again until she confronted a giant reptile. Well, then, of course, says the English patient. With her, I think, relatively surprising at the time win for Best Supporting Actress. Really catapulted her into a different kind of stardom. Well, you know what I remember about that win was that amazing, like, um, hooded dragon dress she wore, you know? I you mean, know what I'm talking about. I do, I do, I know. I've watched the clip many times, Sean. I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm so amazed. <laughs> I think it was one of those instances where maybe the Academy was like, wow, we've got this amazing art house actress nominated. Why don't we just give it to her? I mean, the the English patient is in many ways a cold film, but Julia Binoche's character is this empathic, wonderful nurse. She's very moving in the film. She's great. Um, I think we think of her now as a grand dame, but in this movie that we're about to see damage, she's really, she's going to be quite young and she's going to be quite a little sort of sex pot, I think, in a way. So it'd be interesting to, to look at her sort of at the beginning of her career and see if we can see the seriousness that will that will emerge. Have you got any favorite Juliet Binoche roles? Well, I Clouds and Sils Maria would change my life, Brian. Yeah? How? Because it was the first time I wasn't able to identify with one character. I was torn between both. Mm-hmm. You know, am I Valentin or am I Maria Enders? I just, I'm, to this day, I just don't know. <laughs> You're just swirling and swirling like a Maloya snake. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll say before we watch the movie apparently they all hated each other when they made this film. Well, they didn't hate each other, but they were quite open about the difficulties on set. Louis Mal was very controlling and was having health problems. And Julia Binoche made some comments that, like, the early sex scenes they were filming, she thought, you know, the men were kind of being incredibly sexist and kind of telling her about her body and all these different kind of things. Well, that does not surprise me that men, especially in 1993 would be very sexist in directing a sex scene. Yeah. Are you excited to um, go on this erotic journey with me, Sean? Oh, you know, all the time, Ryan. You know the Sex and death, Sean, your favourite themes. <laughs> no, but really I am, because um, I think this is the most weighty film we've done so far. Well, it has a trash factor as well. I mean, basically, the plot is just about two people engaging in a fuckfest, uh, and one of them happens to be the father of the the woman's intended that so is trashy, that's that's a it? trashy soap opera yeah. plot okay well we are going into the illicit intimacy of jeremy and juliet's sheets we'll see what emerges on the other side bye feel damaged after that, Sean? Well, you know they say, Brian, damaged people are dangerous. Because they know they can survive. What, what did you think? Truth be told, listeners, we're recording this a little bit later after we watched the film, which I think has, has helped with my appreciation of it. This film is enigmatic, nebulous, but also at odds with itself because it's both passionate and very, very, very cold.
Indeed. Okay. Well, let's let's unpack it. So, would you say that the movie had more of a French sensibility or an English sensibility? To be honest, it was a marrying of the two cultures. I think both nations are deeply passionate. It's just one of them just does not know how to express it. <laughs> Which one? The, the, the British, Brian. <laughs> Well, it, this is this movie is very British because the very opening shots of the film are set in the Palace of Westminster, aren't they? They are. Um, because Jeremy Irons is quite a high-up cabinet official. Now, I'm not sure that it ever says, but we instantaneously, based on how he acted and who his sort of colleagues were, said he must be a... He must be a Tory. He, yeah. he is such a Tory. He's a total Tory. Well, why do you say that? He just didn't seem to have any affections for the unions, you know? <laughs> well, and also, he sort of barks at all the civil servants and his underlings, and he goes to these swanky parties where people like Julian Fellows have um, cameo roles. Julian Fellows, better known as the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Gosford Park and creator of Downton Abbey, is there as his little pig-faced colleague. I think if they ever do an Andrew Lloyd Webber biopic, I think Julian Fellows would be very good playing Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think his skin is uh, sagging from his face enough to play Andrew Lloyd Webber now. <laughs> so Jeremy Irons is like, he seems to be on a promising political career. What is his portfolio in the cabinet scene? Um, he's, not, he's not a secretary, but he's a minister for what appears to be the environment. It's very strange, actually, to see early 90s depictions of environmental politics. It's like... <laughs> Yes, there is a hole in the ozone there. And we know there's a hole in the ozone there. So um, he's, he's a rising star. And then one day in some sort of cocktail party or function or something, he in walks a very young, very sweet, but somewhat androgynous looking brunette, Juliette Binoche. You think she looks sweet? I think she looks cunning. Well, the behavior of this character that Juliet plays, Anna Barton, her, her behavior is definitely cunning, cold, and seeming to lack all normal human emotions. But there's a something about her face. She's very young in this film, I think. She's definitely an ingenue, but not an innocent. Absolutely. Yeah? That's a very good assessment. How would you describe her costuming? Okay, well, it's that beautiful, stripped-back, 90s fitted, just fitted enough kind of costuming. Lots of dark blacks, greys. She wears a leather jacket at one point? Yeah, oh yeah, she wears leather, yeah, chocolate browns, um, high belted trousers, kind of like that wet look hair, like a little bit, a little bit wet looking all the time. It's also like kind of a boy's haircut. Yeah. There's something quite sexually androgynous, ambiguous about the way that she's been styled and dressed. Like, She's a femme fatale, but they're not making her into, like, a curvaceous sex pot. I think that by isolating her sexuality in a, a kind of a, a stylized body that is different from, say, his wife yeah. or his secretary or any other woman in the film, I just think it's all part of the act of othering her as a foreign object. She um, that's, that's very well put. She's quite foreign and... I think she inserts herself into this English world and the ripple effects cause damage. You know what else I can remark on? I love Juliette Binoche's accent in this film. Obviously, she's a French actress, but it's that kind of implacable European quality that is part of her disarming unplaceability that makes her so strange. It just, we should give a shout out. We praise the costumes, and I think you're absolutely right. They really distinguish her from the rest of the cast, and they are done by the exquisite Milena Cananero, who has won a few Oscars, most recently for Grand Budapest Hotel. My memory of how Milena Cananero dressed when she accepted the Oscar is quite similar to how Julia Binoche is in this film. Does she look a bit like a wet poodle? She looks like almost like a Salvador Dali yeah. kind of woman. But you know what I mean? With with like, like she's just been dunked with water. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they meet at this cocktail party. They just sort of stare at each other. They have one of those it can only be a French film type of meetings <laughs> where this person glides across the room. We still don't really know what she was doing there. She has this uh, meeting with Jeremy Irons. They shake hands and then... She... And more significantly, they exchange deep eye contact. Deep eye contact. <laughs> and then she disappears. So Jeremy Irons has his life. He has his kind of 
I mean, were you jealous of the real estate in this film? Or was it just, like, too Tory for you? Um, to be honest, I did like Juliet's because she lived in a little gorgeous muse. Yeah, Juliet had a really yeah. nice little muse, but also Jeremy lives in this, like... We couldn't figure out exactly where in London it is. It's, like, either Hampstead or Chelsea or I think one it's of a little bit outside of Fulham London. or something. Really? I, yeah, I really do. Because they have lots of kind of garden area. I think it's probably... Like a little bit further west London, like um It's definitely Boris Johnson country. Yeah, isn't it's it? definitely Boris yeah. Johnson. Like, they have this beautiful house, it's like full of books and antiques and of course and I predicted this with without a conscious memory, I said, You know what, Sean? The kitchen is going to have an aga. Yes, and we had to wait a while, but the aga definitely features. Never Mar- Miranda Richardson toils over that aga, or rather she doesn't. The Filipina maid, Beth, does. <laughs> now, Brian, for our US listeners, they might not know exactly what an aga is, but also they definitely won't know the significance. Well, I, I have to admit, until recently, I didn't know what an aga was. Oh, really? No. Oh, my goodness. You'd have to describe it and tell us. So an aga is, it's, a, it's both a stove and a central heating unit. They're very, very big. They're very expensive. They They began in Scandinavia, and they're quintessentially... To, well-to-do British. Now, I, a good friend of mine who might be listening, R.A., has an Aga <laughs> in her family home. But, you know, I don't think that they... We're not to, judging you. If, if anything, we're, we're jealous. <laughs> so Jeremy Irons has this kind of perfect English life with a kind of brittle atmosphere of not talking about emotions overlaid on it. There is absolutely no motivation or backstory or anything given for why... Jeremy begins fucking Juliet, right? Well, why does anybody start fucking anybody? Well, no, but what I'm saying is, like, they meet at this party, and then who does she turn out to be? She turns out to be his son's girlfriend. Yes. son, Martin. Yes, Martin, played by the adorable Rupert Graves. So this is not a good situation. You could say that. She calls him at the office... And then she says, my address is this place, the muse, the tasteful muse. And he just instantaneously goes, he walks in, and they have what has to be acknowledged to be a very odd first sex scene. She, she's sitting on the bed, and they kind of, like, slide onto the floor. Do you remember, she stretches her arms out in almost like a crucifixion, crucifixion pose. It's very odd. Mm. There, there, I think this was why teenage Brian was like, is that what sex is like? <laughs> Because I don't want to do it. <laughs> Unless it's with Juliet Binoche. He unzips, he enters her, and then he whimpers to ejaculation almost instantly. Now, the funny thing is, I was watching this film thinking, geez, if someone did that to me, I would be like, all right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's and like, yet she has this kind of smile on her face. You know, Do you ever think about this in sex scenes? Like, the people who do the sound editing and the sound mixing, like, they never get Oscar nominations for that. It's always, like, Mad Max and Star Wars and stuff. But really, it should be the people who do... Because, like, creaking beds and also, like, the sound of, you know, that, like, the little, like, whimperings and creakings that come when two bodies meet together. I'm I'm sure there must be some Foley artists who are, who yeah. are doing all that. He really does whimper like a dog, like yeah. a sharp, whimpering dog. And you had a theory about this. this doesn't seem like very pleasant sex why this would be the beginning of an amour fou i think possibly because he's a very powerful man of stature who upon even the instantaneous sexual contact with her ejaculates and orgasms and she brings him to completion upon upon arrival (laughs) and i think in some ways that can be in itself a form of power they have another sex scene soon afterwards, and it doesn't bother either of them at all that this family connection is getting in the way. That involves a stove, not an aga, but yeah. a stove. Yeah, she's like she's like taken over the stove. Also, he like rips those gorgeous Milena Cannonero clothes this, like right off her. This is the whole thing. This is complete artifice. Nobody would have a completely expensive clothes just torn off them. No, no, no. <laughs> it just shows you these people live completely different lives than you do. And it's that second sex scene that. 
I think is the one that I remember most from my teenage viewing. It seems so violent. There's lots of headbanging on walls and kind of just like positions that you think to yourself, God, that must be insanely painful. Yeah, the thing about this, these sex scenes is that there's not a, a huge amount of thrusting going on. There is rolling and writhing. Yeah, you know what I mean. And banging, and rolling, writhing, and banging of of lig of ligaments, not of uh, <laughs> not not a euphemism for sex. Did it arouse you these sex scenes? No. If anything, though, I mean, I I understood the type of sex they were having. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like the equivalent of it's reading very... Jean Paul Sartre. <laughs> but it's a very cerebral yet yet very primal, you know, way of of, of physical love. They are basically bodies. In heat, unhinged from all reason and civilization. Yeah. 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 So we should also point out that that's a very good point, Brian, saying that they're bodies without reason. Because as time goes on, Jeremy Irons becomes more infatuated with Anna Barton. Before we go into talking about Miranda Richardson, who we will talk about a little bit later on, we should say that she does not like this girl. No, she's very suspicious. Very, very suspicious, and rightly so. Um, whereas she grows suspicious, Jeremy grows obsessed. So obsessed to the point that he follows them to Paris. But where does he follow them from? Yeah, they go off to Paris and he has a trip down to Brussels, to the EU, for some all-important environmental conference of some kind. So, you know, this movie should be exhibit A in terms of Nigel Farage's case for why we should be leaving the EU because here's ministers going down on some kind of European junket and when he's in the conference chamber, What's he doing? He's like doodling. He's doodling pussy. Yeah, it literally looks like he's drawing these sort of flowers that have like a Georgia O'Keeffe kind of vaginal shape. It's so she's clearly on his mind. And so he basically bunks off of the conference in Brussels and tracks down his son and the son's fiance and gets in a hotel room that is across the street from them and stares at them while they're like having their romantic Paris weekend sitting in bathrobes eating croissants. They do meet and they do have this weird sex in the door of a church. Yeah, she's wearing just like a trench coat yeah. with nearly any clothes on. Chocolate, her. chocolate brown. Yeah. <laughs> and he fucks her in the doorway of a church in like the open street. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's the kind of people they are. Immediately after, he goes back to his hotel room and seems to spasm with illness, pangs of pain. Yeah. Lying on his bed, feeling things he's never felt before. It's about obsession. And this is where I do buy the believability of the film, this com the complete infatuation with a person to the point that it makes you ill. Jeremy Irons is very good at playing this kind of character. I wrote in my notes, Jeremy Irons is very good at playing Trapped. He, of like all other actors, plays that kind of person who seems perfectly respectable, but you just sense that deep down underneath, once a kind of dark urge is unleashed, it will take him over. I would completely agree. And he's terrible to his son, to his wife, to his little daughter. He basically casts aside all responsibility for family, government, and everything just for a bit of fucking. And then something quite shocking happens. Martin says that he and Anna, they're engaged to be married. This does not prompt either Juliet or Jeremy to want to stop their affair. In fact, if anything, it kind of inflames it more. They have a scene in a park, don't they, where Jeremy says something like, um, well, let's run off together. You can break off your engagement with Martin and we'll go and we'll be together. I'll leave my wife. I'll leave my family. And she has a very interesting response. Do you remember what she says? She says, you, you don't want to have breakfast with me. Like, why, why would you sacrifice everything for something you already have? Her psychology as a character, I mean, Juliet is able to sell it, but let's admit that it is, it is uh, very paint-by-numbers psychology, because what's her, what's her history? She's, she hates all possessiveness, right? That's what she says at one point. And why is this, we learn? Now, this is where the hokum comes into it. <laughs> Anna had a brother who killed himself. The reason he killed himself is that he was sexually obsessed with Anna. So when Anna becomes involved with a man, young man called Peter Wetzler when she is in her teens, her brother cannot take it. And as a result, he kills himself. I think he, he slits, his, slits his wrist in the bath. And she discovers the body, doesn't she? She discovers the body and immediately afterwards she begs Peter to fuck her. Yeah. So this is a classic kind of primal scene of like, 
incestuous siblings. It's unclear whether they consummated their incestuous It's unclear, but you make your own choices. Then lost brother who has damaged Juliet for all these years and clearly turned her into a kind of person for whom sex is enacting these deep psychic traumas and cannot be possessed. So we learn we learn the full story of this because who shows up for the sort of wedding brunch but the delightful Leslie Caron. Yes, who plays her mother and who is brilliant. I was looking at Leslie Caron's filmography before we did this. And apart from like Gigi in American Paris, a lot of duds along the way. Yeah. But this is a great this is a great little role for an actress of her age. She's alive. Yeah. It's kind of like when Lauren Bacall started doing, you know, Dogville and uh, Birth and all those yeah. things. Here's a like a 1950s actress. Let's put her in a dark as hell film. Well, what's the point of that? Really? Well, and let's make her the embodiment also of like a certain kind of blousy continental woman who kind of has seen it all and comes in and she sort of commands the breakfast table and she's the closest thing to comic relief in the film she's not comic but she is relief she's she is like welcome relief yeah because she sort of says it like it is and she's like you know of course martin is not anna's usual type usually they are more tormented and she's like hinting that anna has had a string of like difficult lovers and all she ties it all to the to the dead brother which is presumably her dead son yeah and she goes you know Martin looks so much like Anna's brother <laughs> so <laughs> much you oh you never knew you never knew about her brother and it's like it is like it is hokum at this point it's like oh my god but it's sold in an enjoyable way because all the English people are like oh my goodness we could never talk about such yeah things. and it's that whole thing like they're dying to react <laughs> they, they don't you know English people are so weird <laughs> and then, but French people are on like the opposite end of the spectrum at least depicted by Leslie Caron because they're just like air all their dirty laundry in public and then um, Jeremy Irons drives Leslie Caron back to her hotel the Dorchester in Mayfair she basically has picked up solely through her magic telepathic powers of detection well she is her daughter's mother yeah she's picked up that they're fucking each other just from the way that um, Jeremy is looking at Anna across the breakfast table and basically she says, you must not stand in the way. <laughs> yes, which Jeremy doesn't heed that advice. Let's speed through the kind of plot that, that happens and the, and the tragic finale. So basically Anna comes up with this plan, which is that the adulterous father and young fiance are going to take their own flat where they'll be able to fuck in private, away from son Rupert Graves, right? She signals this to Jeremy by sending him the keys to the flat on the most insanely ominous key ring that anyone has ever come up with. It's like some geometric dragon. You know? Yeah, it's like if it looks like the kind of thing that Freud would have collected when he was like writing Totem and Taboo. Oh, what <laughs> do you know what I mean? One of his more de derided works. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It has. It looks almost like like this kind of sort of pagan sex idol on a keychain, and so you know it's this flat is bad news. Jeremy and Juliet have just a little period of time where they meet in this flat and they have one final sex scene, which is a bit more romantic, I would say, than... They eat foie gras, they have some <laughs> wine. They fuck in the, in the in the open light as well, it's worth, it's worth noting. The windows, it's a bright room, it's, they're on a bed, it's white. And because it's, it's significant, it's on a top upper floor of yeah. this building, which is important for later. So. Yeah. So basically, they're sitting in nude in bed, eating their foie gras, when who comes to the door? Well, they're actually fucking. Oh, you're right! I'm sorry. So they've been eating their foie gras, and then they're at it for round two. And Jeremy is actually inside of Juliet, like, thrusting away. And he had a very... Was that really Jeremy Irons? That was definitely ass? Jeremy Irons. It was nice. Yeah. It was nice. He, he looks good, but who opens the door? Only... Poor old Matin. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, picture, if you will, walking into uh, a flat, opening the door, and finding your fiancé being penetrated by your rather attractive and well-built father, whose ass is, like, thrusting in the air as he as he stoops her. I had to get in a bit more Yiddish, Sean. Very good ones. <laughs> so... It's it's shocking, and they stare at Martin, and there's this long eye contact, and nobody quite knows what to say, and what happens. And it is genuinely shocking, because I, 
I, I, I knew, I mean, we all knew that there was going to be a, a, a big reveal at some point. Yeah. So I thought to myself, oh my God, here comes the shouting. Here comes the tears. Here comes whatever. I, I was prepared for that. When what happens, Martin is so shocked. Dumbfounded. By Dumbstruck. what he sees. Yeah. That he, he blithely steps back until he tips himself over the edge of the staircase all the way down onto the hard marble floor beneath. And dies. And dies instantly. And it is shocking. Yeah. And Jeremy runs naked down the stairs. <laughs> With like, because constru- there's like builders and construction workers who are working on the yeah. building and he just runs past them, penis flapping, yeah. and picks up, cradles his dead, dead son, son in the kind of male pieta. Yeah. Ooh. Oh. You know, while symbolism. while then there he is, the pools of blood on the floor, the builders all looking around, and who saunters zombie like down the stairs and out the door? Yeah, she glides, doesn't she? Really, she's just she out of there. Glac- she glacially glides out of there, and that is the la- it's almost the last we see of Anna. In many ways, I wish it were. Um, she she leaves the building. She walks past everybody as if she was a ghost. Yeah, and the ambulance is coming, and it's just like, I'm leaving the wreckage of yeah. this, the damage yeah. that I've done. I'm like, I was thinking about this. They didn't kill Martin, nothing happened. I was thinking, where is Anna? Why isn't there any quiz? But he fell, he, you know? Yeah. He fell, he clearly very he very clearly fell. Yeah. And so Anna just disappears. Yeah, there is no crime here. No. The movie could almost have ended there, but we would have lacked the significant reaction from a character who's kind of been going through the movie this is Miranda Richardson as the as the wife now in a genuine supporting role yeah now I knew that you knew that this was an Oscar nominee role but through most of the movie were you thinking well Miranda Richardson is fine but what is she really doing well I mean after the death I knew this was where it came from yeah but it's a very oddly structured role it's a bit like Beatrice Strait in Network or something where she's been around she has some scenes, but she's not really registering as a character. Mostly she just gets lied to because Jeremy's like, oh, I'm I'm voting late at, at Westminster. And yes. really, he's off to have an affair. And she's... Yet another absentee politician. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it started. Yes. So, but then once Martin is dead, basically all of the things that a supporting actress could possibly do in a film are crammed into about two scenes. It's a masterclass of histrionics. Okay, so let's think about it. Best lines. She gets the best lines. Like, what are some of the good lines? You should have killed yourself. I would have buried you. And I would have wept. Yes. And she she collapses next to the Aga, yeah. I believe. And it's like, basically... But, but he comes in to discover that she has been beating herself up, you know? And crying. Her face is puffy. Yeah. Her mouth is red. She has... You know, taking it out on her body. Ingrid, Ingrid, no. take, take these. Oh, I don't Come on. Rob Come on. I want him back. I want my son back. I want Martin, Martin. Give me my son. Ingrid, Martin is dead. Your son is dead. Give his death to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. And then she has this wonderful, like, terrible line at the end where she says, she says, it's such a pity that we ever even met. Like, really, Miranda Richardson goes from, like, zero to 60. You know how they use that for, like, fancy sports cars? Like, that is what she does in this movie. Like, she's just been simmering along, and then she delivers all the goods at once. You know, if I was ever an actor, <laughs> that is the kind of role I want to play. I never would ever want to be a lead. At, just to have those kinds of scenes. And then to top it off, because she does all that in the kitchen, but then she has one other scene where they're up in the bedroom mm. where she gets to take off all her clothes and confront him and say, this wasn't enough for you. I, I mean... This is this is quite a role for Miranda Richardson. It's a great role, and it was a great year for her as well. Yeah, yeah. as we said. Um, so so that's Miranda, and the the coda, the tail end, is that Jeremy basically, obviously, this is splashed all over the news. He loses his governmental position, 
Um, he loses his family. He loses his family. What's left of them? Yeah, everything's terrible. He loses Anna. Yeah, yeah, Anna never comes back. Yeah. And where does he end up, Sean, in the kind of epilogue? Well, it seems to be he's like either in northern Italy or the south of France or somewhere. I mean, I'm not quite sure. He's in exile. Mor- or Morocco, maybe. He had one of those shopping bags that's made of, like, the net. <laughs> and that's a very French thing. <laughs> he's walking in sandals down a cobblestone street. And he goes to this Spartan apartment that... I have to admit, is like exactly the kind of place that I would want to rent on Airbnb if I was traveling somewhere. Like, it is a nice place with some fancy cheese. Like, granted, he's dealing with like the moral wreckage of his entire life, but it is in a nice flat with some nice cheese, and he just eats the cheese and sips some wine. And I was thinking, God, if you've destroyed your whole life and your family, this isn't such a bad way to close out your days. So we see that, uh, you know, behind him by the bed is a huge blown up photo of one that Martin had given him while he was alive of Jeremy, Martin and Anna. And he's he's blown it up to like enormous proportions so it covers the whole wall and the camera like zooms out. There was one point during that coda where I was very, very, very concerned that it was going to just like the camera would slowly swoop onto the bed and we'd see Anna waking up. But it never happened. No, she she's off to somewhere else she's to like gone. entrap some more people yeah. in her psychological damage. There is another coda as well, a voiceover. You remember where he says, I saw her one time after that at an airport in Zurich. She was with Peter. She was carrying a child. She could have been any other person in the crowd. It's almost like a Greek tragedy when you think about it because it's about the randomness of fate, right? It's, it's like about the, it's about the destruction of family. But but I guess what I'm saying is when he says she could have been any other person, you know, it's not like he saw her and he understood that this all had meaning. There is no meaning to this. It it is without meaning, right? It's like they met randomly, they wanted to fuck, the fucking has caused all this destruction, and in the end, it amounts to nothing. Mm. We're staring into the dark abyss of meaninglessness. Mm. I really liked it. I think <laughs> I think I'm into French films. Yeah. Well, but it is French, but it's also, like we just said, it's in that it's in that notes on a scandal territory of, like, they've clearly taken a quite trashy novel. Like, that's where I think all the, the um, fake psychology has come from. And they have amped it up with great casting, incredible production design, very tasteful cinematography and all that, and made it seem much deeper than it probably really is. It's just essentially a tabloid story about an affair. Yeah? Mm, I don't think so. No? No. It's a film about the painful consequences of chance. Mm. And and being ruled by desire. Yeah. It's about ch- it's a film of chance and desire and regret and loss and consequence. And I think, like, I see it as a film that is, like, six dominoes lined up ready to all fall at once yeah and I guess what resonates with me is that I do believe that I do believe in chance encounters and I do believe that in, in more of a positive way you just have to meet someone once for them to suddenly be in your life everywhere yeah and for them to have a rippling rippling effect you know do you think this is a, a morality film about incest well that's the I think the thing that sticks in my craw the most <clears throat> is that every bit of Juliet's behavior is sort of explained away by this backstory of incest. And that's why it does have that Greek connotation as well, right? That it's like there was a sin of the incest that's then repeated as the sin of the adultery. Well, the thing is, the adultery is an form of self-incest. Yeah, and there's a very Oedipal thing going on as well because of the father and the son fighting over the same woman. I mean... And so it's that sort of very easy psychology of like how things can be connected to something very clear from the past that goes dot by dot by dot that I think it troubles me in just a way that it feels too rote. But I really do like the direction and the ambiguity of the performances that I would have preferred her to just be ambiguously motivated without that, without that story. But we recommend Damage, yes? Damage is going to stay with me. We love Juliette Binoche. She's played a lot of different kinds of roles. Has this one altered your perception of what she can do in any way? It's a different role, I think, than a lot of the other things she's played. It's funny because I would always associate Juliette Binoche with playing good characters, ultimately good characters. Mm -hmm. And this has opened my eyes a bit. Do you want to see her as a supervillain? 
In what? I don't know, like a Marvel movie. Not oh. a Marvel movie, but like, would you like to see her as somebody really well, awful? We probably will see her as a super villain in a Marvel film. Maybe she'll show up in like, Godzilla meets the Green Lantern or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are making Godzilla sequel, but she won't be back. Oh, she... Actually, even... Um... But could she be back as a, as a kind of replicant <gasps> or a... Or uh, an attempt, so to speak. <laughs> an attempt. Attempt, because I'm I'm segueing into the movie we're gonna do next. Oh my god, Brian, yeah. that's very good. Sorry, we're Sorry. wrapping up damage now. The next film that we'll be looking at in two weeks' time. Yes, which we're, is... we're looking at another French film, essentially. <laughs> in a way, directed by Jean-Pierre Genet with uh -huh. an entire French production. Is it uh, Amelie? No, Brian. It's is not it Amelie. is it Delicatessen? No. It's Alien Resurrection. Alien Amelie Resurrection. Amelie Resurrection. <laughs> I know from my own experience and memory that we're all going to have very mixed feelings about it. However, I'm looking forward to that discussion. Well, I can tell you, folks, Sean talks about the Alien franchise probably more than any other movies on a day-to-day -day basis. So I've been kind of trying to get him to be quiet about it so that he can save it for the episode. Expect intense examination of Sigourney and Winona, and this will be our first um, venture into another planet. <laughs> no, it's really good. <laughs> what? Why are you laughing? <laughs> because you're a funny man. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I look forward to it. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, we'll blast off in a spaceship next time. Until then, Sean, how can people get in touch with us? You can follow us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please, while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We're very interested to know who's listening, what they're thinking, and, and where you are. We have a feeling there are people all over the world who are listening to us. Um, and damaged people are everywhere. <laughs> damaged people. You could also uh, check out our website. We post all the back episodes, and occasionally we write a blog. It's www.broadappealpod.com. Uh, anything else we have to say? Yeah, you can find me on at X and Brian at at BAMolenSpeaks. Great, let's get some foie gras and some cheese and see what happens. Let's, let's, let's go slam my head against the ground. Come ah, on. goodbye everyone. Bye. Bye.